Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. We're going to finish our series on small groups today, highlighting a passage where the church organically began to do what we have intentionally orchestrated. So turn with me over to Acts chapter 2. The title of this message is Life Together. Life Together. We're going to look at verses 42 and 43. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 43. It says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone, verse 43, kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Lord, help us as we study. The backdrop to this is that the disciples had, had just experienced a miracle, a fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. Jesus had already risen from the dead. He had been with the disciples after that point for a period of 40 days, teaching them about what the Old Testament meant with respect to his ministry, how to bring prophetic passages through the cross and then interpret them about uh, who Jesus was and for the people to hear. And after a period of 40 days, Jesus ascended to the Father and sat at the right hand sat at his right hand um, and he said before he left I don't want you to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father has promised stay here, don't go anyplace else because in a few days from now you're going to be filled with power the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you will, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth but you've got to stay here to do that and so the disciples the remaining eleven in that Judas deleted himself as a result of the guilt of his betrayal they added one more Matthias and then there were 108 others men and women who were considered extended leadership probably most of those were the 70 that Jesus sent out on a short term mission in the book of Luke and Mark 120 people altogether that were solid disciples of Christ and who would follow the lead of the initial 12 the leadership team they waited, not knowing how long they were going to wait, but they waited. Now, between the time of Passover, when Jesus was crucified, and the next feast, which was Pentecost, there were 50 days. And the reason Pentecost is called Pentecost is because of the number 50. Penta in the Greek is 50. So there were 50 days between the feast of celebration of the harvest, which was Pentecost, and Passover. Jesus in that period taught the disciples for 40 of those days and the disciples probably hadn't figured that there was a strategic moment that God wanted to fill them with the Holy Spirit so that people would be able to hear it from other places meaning the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem for every feast from wherever they were all over the world Africa Asia Europe they were required to come to Jerusalem and there were three feasts a year feast of Passover feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. And the Feast of Pentecost was the ingathering moment to celebrate that God has given the harvest to the Israelites. And they were to come and thank God for the harvest. Ten days from the time that Jesus ascended to the Father to the Feast of Pentecost. 
and the disciples were there. Now, again, strategically, they may not have been thinking that this was a moment where God was going to do something special, but God was. And so they waited in Jerusalem, all 120 of them, the original 12 or the 12, and then the extended leadership. And as they were waiting there, it says in Acts chapter 2 that a noise like a violent rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire that rested upon each one of them on top of their heads. Strange sight. And then they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Every one of them, all 120. Tongues, by the way, is, is a beautiful gift. Some of you may not have it. And it sounds strange because people are talking in languages that you don't understand. But it's beautiful. It's a way for people to communicate His glory, His honor, His goodness that bypasses the grammar which we don't do very well at, at using. Anybody an English major in here? Very few. Thank God for you. So the people who are English majors understand what the subject of a sentence is and the object and what a participle is and how not to dangle it. Most of you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> Yet you speak English. But in order to communicate with God, wouldn't it be really good if we did it perfectly? Using perfect language. But there is none. And since there is no perfect language because we keep coming up with new words, if language is perfect, we wouldn't have to add anything to it. Since there is no perfect language, and when we use it, we're poor at using it. So not only is the language messed up in that it's inadequate, but people who are using it are messed up. So you got weak squared trying to communicate with a perfect God. All the thoughts and goodness that we want to articulate as best we know how, but with flawed language and flawed people using that language. Just to make a great combination to articulate what we desire. Yet, we are called to use the language as best we know how. I do my best to wordsmith my entire life. So it's, it's good that we have the language that we do have, whether it be English, Spanish, whatever is native to you. But then there are those moments when you when it's a blessing to bypass all your intellect and to not have to depend upon your inadequacy of usage or the weakness in the language itself to communicate things to God and that's what tongues allows unbroken, un, unhindered communication that's directly from the heart, directly to him that talks about his goodness and his greatness and his glory tongues is beautiful and it is available to anybody who wants it they began to speak in these other tongues. And they were so excited about it, they spilled out into the street. Beautiful. <laughs> they couldn't contain themselves. Now, again, Jews were to appear in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. They were all to come together to worship at this feast moment. It was now the Feast of Pentecost. Ten days had passed. And God had poured out His Spirit on that particular day. And so all these Jewish people from all over the world were there. They all spoke different languages because they were born in different spots, yet they had a common heritage. These people poured out into the street, meeting the disciples, speaking in other tongues. And the Jewish people who were there listening from every nation under heaven heard and said, why do we hear these Galileans speaking in the language to which we were born? How can this be? Now you have to understand something about their perception. People from Galilee, Jerusalem was the big city. It was New York, New York City. Galilee was like West Virginia. Don't have any problem with folk from West Virginia. Love them. But you can tell somebody is not from New York if they're from West Virginia. All they got to do is open their mouth. 
These people were saying, how can those folk with that accent speak in the dialect to which we were born? They didn't just say language. They said dialect in the Greek. So you can go ahead and learn Spanish. But when you go to Mexico, folk know you're not from there. <laughs> speak it all you want. You still sound like you're from America because you still have that accent. And very few people ever get the language down so well that nobody can tell especially on mass and all these people were speaking in the languages to which all these other people were born and they were saying this is crazy how can this be and they said oh we know we figured out they drunk that's what the bible says and peter said well we need an explanation now we can't take that peter said we we are not drunk as you you suppose for it's only the the, the third hour of the day which was 9 a.m meaning we haven't had time to get inebriated this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. Now, where did Peter get that? He wasn't the most theologically astute when Jesus was, was doing his ministry. He couldn't figure out much of anything. What do the parables mean? A sower went out to sow. Tell us. We can't figure it out. Jesus was so frustrated. I said, if you don't get this one, you can't get anything I say. What's wrong with you? He's the one who rebuked Jesus. You can't go to the cross. Far be it from you. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, when Jesus calls you Satan, that's not a good day. That's not a good day. It doesn't encourage you in your ability to discern things and be theologically sound. Nah. So Peter didn't, but where did he get this? He stood up and said, this is what the prophet Joel, well, he hung out with Jesus long enough where by those 40 days made a difference. And Jesus began to teach him, this is what this passage means in the Old Testament. This is how this spoke of me, and this is how you bring that through the cross. And this is what I'm going to produce, a group of people. And you're going to be the leaders, you, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel. Oh, it's going to be marvelous. And so he stood up, not knowing that this was going to be a moment where he could preach. It wasn't a timed kind of thing with a Sunday morning where I know I have to present a message at a certain moment. This was spontaneous. And he stood up and said, this is what the prophet Joel spoke of. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your male and female servants, they're going to begin to, to do things supernaturally. And old men will see dreams. Young men will have visions. Oh, God is about to pour himself out of humanity. This is amazing. And then he begins to talk about how they got to that point. That the Messiah was sent to you. And you killed him. He was, he was the son of God. And you really blew it. And then you get down to verse 36. And he says, know for certain that God made... This Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And they had been waiting, the Jews had, for generations. Ever since Adam, creation, for this Messiah. And Jesus was sent, the Messiah was sent to their generation, and they blew it. They didn't just ignore him, they killed him. Murder. Now, if... if you good people wouldn't do this, but hypothetically, if you had murdered somebody and you found out he was back in three days, <laughs> would it matter where the plane was going? Wouldn't you just show up at Dulles and say, give me the first flight out? Because you realize you, you, you gave your best shot and the dude's back. And you know he's thinking about you. <laughs> well, what are you going to do if he's God? Where can you run? They knew how much fault they bore for what they did. And when Peter said, know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ whom you crucified, 
The next phrase was this, verse 37. Peter, is there anything we can do? I mean, how mad is God? How mad is he at us? I mean, we, we have blown it more than any other people on the planet. Is he going to crush us? Is he going to send lightning bolts and fry us? Is there any hope for us? And Peter says, glad you asked. Yeah, if you repent, verse 38, and be baptized and receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit, then the promise is for you and all your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And I imagine all those Jews were sitting there thinking, did I hear right? I, he said all I got to do is change my mind and not keep going the way I... That's, that's all I got. And then what? He going to give me a gift? God's going to give me a gift. If somebody killed my son, I would have to tap all the grace I could find just to forgive. I'd have to go on the reserve of supernatural input. Everything that God had done on the inside of me just to forgive somebody for that horrible atrocity. I don't think that on their birthday I would send them a Morton's gift card. I just don't think I would be inspired to do that at all. Not only did God forgive, he said, I'm giving you a gift. They're sitting there thinking, who is this God? He's amazing to me. He forgives me for doing this, and then he gives me a gift. And then he says, it's for my children, too. Ah, Do you know how long the line was to repent? Me first! Me first! Me first! Oh, get behind me! Get behind me! Me first! Oh, when you realize how wrong you've been and what, what release and freedom looks like and how gracious God is, all you want to do is run to the front in a hurry. You don't want to delay your redemption. 3,000 people got right with God. 3,000, just like that. Now, in verse 41, it says 3,000 people came to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 42 says they. I don't know how long it took to get from verse 41 to verse 42. But I do know that 3,000 people makes up a crowd, but it doesn't make up a they. To have a they, you have to have commonality. They are known as one group, not just 3,000 individuals. You can have a crowd without having a they. It says, and they. It's so important that you be identified with the people so that you and your individuality can be better defined. The beauty is that when, when, when you identify with a group of people, you find your purpose more clearly than ever before. When this church doesn't, it is no longer their church to you or that church to you, but now you use personal pronouns that are, are in the first person and third person, not second. See, grammar, you, you still don't know what I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> first person singular and first person plural. I, us, we. Second person, they, them, you. When the church no longer becomes that institution over there, 
and their congregation and their vision, and now it becomes yours, oh, then you have joined with a group of people to such a degree, now you can be defined by somebody else as they. It's important that we do something more than just build a crowd on Sunday morning, and Sunday morning is, is beautiful. I am glad you were here. Don't want you to be anyplace else on a Sunday. Better here than not any place. So happy. But the goal of having you here is not just to feed my ego with numbers. I'm so far beyond that. I barely count anymore. We have numbers so that we can understand our growth and what we need to do to accommodate it. But my soul and ego is not stroked by large numbers. I'm trying to figure out how in the world can we go from 3,000 to they. To make it one cohesive people that are thinking in unity about what it means to be the body of Christ that reaches out to the community and does something significant. That every time we touch it, we leave the fingerprint of Jesus. They. My little girl one day came to me and we were listening to the radio on the way into church and somebody was preaching. Daddy, why aren't you you on radio? You could be famous. Like, you can talk really well. You ought to be on TV, and maybe you can write for the religion section of the Washington Post. As chaplain of the Redskins, you could do a lot. You could be famous. I said, baby, I don't want to be famous. I want to be enveloped by people. I don't have a superstar mentality. I don't want to be out there and have Brett Fuller Ministries going. And I've had many opportunities and said no to all of them. And folks are now beginning to say, you need to say yes to some of them. But I don't care about that because I'd rather be identified by you and with you. I love his church. I just want to be known as your pastor. That's what I want to be known as. I love my every nation world, which is the affiliation beyond this local congregation that helps to oversee who we are. I love it. And I want to be known as walking with a group of men that help to lead this movement all around the world. That's how I want to be defined. They, not just me. I beg you, get a congregational mentality. Let God begin to wash your mind and realize that you won't be completely swallowed up by a whole and be now non-defined because it's bigger than you. You will find your definition in the midst of a people who are doing their purpose. It's beautiful that way. Jesus said... Paul said something about Jesus with respect to the way he does stuff. It says in Colossians chapter 3 that when Jesus, who is our life, is revealed, that we will be revealed with him in glory. Now, if there's anybody who could be a superstar, it'd be Jesus. I mean famous beyond comprehension. When he shows up for the second coming, that cumulative moment, which Paul is speaking about there in, in Colossians, when he is revealed, who, he, who is our life, we will be revealed with him in glory. When he shows up, I'm here. Worship me. And all of it would be accurate. He could say that legitimately. He could take up all of the TV stations and news programs and proclaim his being at his majesty. But he says, when he appears, he's bringing us with him. 
I don't know why he even identifies with us. Because all we do is mess up his reputation. Is there some stuff, like if you were on a, a member of a board and you found out the organization wasn't doing right, what would you do with your name and your affiliation? Delete me, please. Take my name off the register. I don't want to be associated with that. Yet Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. We mess up his reputation constantly. Yet he wants to be more identified with us than to take the glory for himself. When he appears... When he reveals himself, he will reveal us with him in glory. When you do something good, do you bring other people with you? When somebody begins to praise you for whatever ministry you've done, oh, listen, it was her and him and him and her and all of us together, you reveal others in the moment of glory. Trying to, to do it like Jesus requires that you humble yourself. It requires that you deal with the insecurities on the inside of you that desperately want to be recognized. Somebody pat you on the back all the time because you've done this and do that, and now you can have a sense of significance. If you don't get that sense of significance from your relationship with God and being in his presence on a regular basis and being approved by him, there is not a circumstance out there that can give it to you. You will be constantly looking for it, every place, trying to do good in order to feel good. Not doing good in order to worship, but do good to feel good. And if you're doing good to feel good, you will need the next thing to make you feel better because that feeling goes away. It's only when you get affirmed in the presence of God for who you are, not because of what you do, do you have a sense of significance that goes beyond needing good works to identify you. And then you can gladly share the credit with anybody because you don't need it. You don't need it. Jesus loves to identify with us. You need to identify with his body. And let that identification begin to help define who you are. They. And it says they were, they were continually. What does continuous look like in your life with re regard to your spirituality? What's it look like? Do you do anything continually spiritually? Is there a cessation? Is there a stopping point? In your, can you look at the time from which you gave your heart to Jesus till now? And are there, 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 there long rest stops on the way? Have you had those moments when you just quit because you got mad somebody did something wrong to you in church? Somebody who was supposed to be faithful wasn't. Or God didn't fulfill what you thought he was supposed to for your own life and you just said, I'm not doing this no more. And then somebody brought you to church and then you got back on track. Has your life been one period of sprint after long periods of rest? And then a period of sprint and long period? Have you been inconsistent like that? There ought to be some continual in your life that defines you. And this is where you've got, you've got to employ perseverance. Because Christianity is the hardest way to go. It is not an easy life. The most rewarding worth every moment but it is hard living the Christian life now having said that it is harder still suffering the consequences of your rebellion before before I magnify what Christianity is and how difficult it is let me give you perspective the consequences of your rebellion and your sin are worse 
It's harder to deal with all that stuff than it is to live right. I promise you. Better to live right and have no consequences and have blessing than it is to live wrong. Be at ease in the moment and then deal with all the consequences of your stupidity and the wrong decisions and then having to make up for everything you did wrong and retrace your steps to try to get it back on the right track and fix all the relationships you destroyed. Better that hard than the other. I take this hard. So I'm not complaining. I'm just looking at reality. But it's worth living like this. Every day, continual, trusting the grace of God for you to be right, do right, act right, think right. For 32 years, I've been living for him. Haven't jumped the tracks yet. Or I've had some moments when it looked like the things were tottering, going around a curve a little bit too fast, and maybe the the train wouldn't, wouldn't be on where it should be. But listen to me. I have never stepped away from my relationship with him. You can never describe me as being perfect. Don't confuse me. I just talk to my family. My staff for that matter. But consistent, yes. And not because bread is so great, but because I rely upon the grace of Almighty God every day to help me be right, to keep me out of the wrong way, and to make me do right. Do not presuppose Don't marginalize me because you say, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You're a pastor. I didn't come out this way. I didn't come out with a Bible from my mama's belly. I was a sinner just like you. I got right with God at the age of 20. I said, Lord, all I want to do is is right. And I want to please you and make you happy. 1981 and now it's 2013 and I'm still doing right. I was you. And you may not be what I am now, but you can still do right continually. Continually. It's possible. And, and what were they doing in order to make sure that they were living right? Devoting themselves. They were devoting themselves. One, to the apostles' teaching. Two, to fellowship. Three, to the breaking of bread. And four, to prayer. Now, this is where life groups just practically happen. All this stuff that was happening in the book of Acts is organic. I don't know that there were, there were programs that they placed, they put in place in order to, to stimulate. I, I just think it just happened because people were just so happy about being right with God and being forgiven. And all they wanted to do was be together and fellowship about it and learn more about what the Old Testament had to say because that's all they had. They didn't have a New Testament yet. It hadn't been written. And so they were trying to figure out what the Old Testament, oh, and they were just in it every day, every moment. It was so cool. And daily they were doing this. And as I said, I don't know how how long the distance was between verse 41 and 42, but they developed a culture of this, of being, number one, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. (sighs) Broken record, again, you need to read your Bible every day. Every day you need to read your Bible. Every day. Without fail, every day. need to get up. I don't know what your routine is to get ready in the morning. You need to add another 15 minutes to it so you can read your Bible and pray. Minimum 15 minutes. You can do that. Just go to bed 15 minutes earlier. You can do that. Just just do it. Because this shows your devotion. And no, you may not get much out of it on that particular day. It might be just a clock in, clock out. I read a passage of scripture. It didn't mean much to me. So, why you got to get something out of it every day? Help me with that. Why does it have to just jump off the page and and just impact your life? Why? 
As I said last week, sometimes reading scripture is as mundane as a stonemason putting one brick upon another. Nothing spectacular about that. Nothing sensational. Very boring. But if he doesn't do it every day, he won't build anything. The goal is not for you to feel something when you read your Bible. The goal is for you to build something while you read your Bible. I beg you, get it in every day and every day you do not. You are not putting a brick upon another, which means you are delaying whatever you need to live in. The promises of Almighty God you need to, to live in. And if you don't know them, you can't live in them. And every day you need to hold on to some passage that's going to maintain your sanity and keep you progressing. If you do not know what they are, then you are suffering the winds that blow you from one place to another. Read your Bible every day. This is what devotion looks like to his word. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Love it. And read it to such a degree that Psalm 1 can be yours. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who does this now. Meditates day and night. He will be like a tree that is firmly planted by the rivers of water, whose leaf does not wither, who yields fruit in its season, and in whatever he does, he prospers. You want to prosper in whatever you do? Start reading this Bible. Now, that doesn't mean God's going to bless everything you do. That means once you read the Bible, you figure out what you're not supposed to do. So he whittled out, whittles down your life so that you only do what you're supposed to do. And what you're supposed to do is what he wants you to do, which is already blessed, so you can't help but be blessed. <laughs> now, when you read every day, you become like that tree planted by the rivers of water. What does a tree planted by the rivers of water do? It automatically sends its root system into the river. It's not dependent upon a shower. If it never rains, it's all right. It's got all it needs because it's got the river next to it. Most of you are dependent upon what I give you on a Sunday. This shower, because your root system is not feeding into the river of the word on a regular basis. It is so important that you come and get what shower you can get on Sunday morning. But if this is all your sustenance, you're missing out and you're not building something as quickly as you could. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, to fellowship. See, in small groups, that's where fellowship happens. There's not much fellowship that happens here. Maybe a little bit out in the foyer as you hang around. But most of y'all go from your seat out that door to your car. You pick up your kids, you go to your car. You barely know one another because you're not in an environment where relationship could happen. They were devoted to fellowship, continually devoted to fellowship, just hanging out with one another. They were devoted to that because they realized, unless I get to know you, unless you get to know me, we can't be in as un much unity as we desire. So let's hang out together so we can do something together better than we can ever do individually. Thirdly, they were devoted to breaking bread. Now, all y'all like this. You love to eat. Nobody's mad about eating. Anytime there's food, you're going to show up probably. And this is what happens in small groups. People provide refreshment and you come and you just break bread together. It's just beautiful. And lastly, they were devoted to prayer. When you go to small group, people pray for you and you get to pray for people. They need your faith to intercede for them 
to be inserted in their circumstances and you need theirs and then you begin to tie with one another and your needs and now it's not just on a Tuesday and Wednesday night where you're beginning to talk to one another about what, what you need. Now the other person's calling you or sending you an email saying, how's that going? How you doing? How can I pray for you today? Relationship happens. This was organic. We have to orchestrate it. However it occurs, this is the process through which God begins to build his body. They were devoted to these things. And then lastly, it says there was a sense of awe. He had Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, they were all Jewish, but they came from different cultures. Same heritage, different cultures. And these, these they all had different languages and different ways of doing kosher food, different spices. They had different ways of figuring out how to read their Bible. This, even though they had a common heritage because they were from different backgrounds, they had to figure out what it meant to be one. And these people were so one that everybody was going, this is amazing what God has done. Amazing how he's brought Jews from Europe and from Asia and from Africa, all different hues, to be one. There was a sense of awe of what God had done. And every time I walk in our house, this house, I have a sense of awe. That combined with the sense that I'm sitting on a powder keg. Awe that we are a people as diverse as you can get. Black, white, Asian. I think just about every interracial couple in the Washington, D.C. area goes to this church. (laughs) I sit here in awe realizing that that we are in the state of Virginia doing this. And I, I'm, I'm not foolish now. I'm not separate from, from understanding that this little black man is, is sitting on this fence post like a turtle and he didn't get there on his own. That we just commemorated the 50-year anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington and how, how important that was. The generation that is growing up now, the, the Ys, the, uh, Generation Y and the, the um, uh, millennial generation, they, they don't understand as much as we do experientially what it looks like to, to, having, to have to go through unbridled racism. They don't know. And so I freely talk about black folk, white folk, Asian, but this generation rarely mentions race. They don't say black. They don't say white. When they when they want to re, when they want to reference it, I see so many kids just point to their skin. It's different. I'm not mad at them. No issue. Just different. But I realize we didn't get to the point where white folk don't identify black folk as black, and black folk aren't identifying white folk as white. We didn't get to that point by just waking up one day, that we are part of a long continuum that's trying to figure out how we can best relate to one another and been through some stuff. And the fact that we are in the state of Virginia, which, is the, which was the seat of the Confederacy. If you, if you need a reminder that we are still in the South, drive two hours south to Richmond. Just go to Richmond. It's two hours south and 30 years backwards. Truth, I love Richmond. 
but it's very different than here. Very different. Now, you're hearing from a black man who is as reconciled as reconciled can be. I ain't got no issues. And if issues begin to present themselves, I deal with it in a conciliatory way. I find my Bible. And I'm trying to always be redemptive. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm not trying to be bitter. I'm not trying to retaliate. I'm always just saying, what is God going to do with this? How can I help you? What can you do to help me? There may be people who are as reconciled, but nobody more. And the stuff through which I had to go when I was young, shoot, you kidding me? I'm so happy my kids don't have to. I was called the N-word so much I thought of my first name. They burned crosses in my neighborhood because we moved in. Y'all don't know. And there's no smell of smoke on me. You would never know it. I've been through the fire, and you cannot tell. You cannot tell. That's why I walk in here and have a sense of awe. Because I remember when this couldn't happen. This could not happen. Had a woman in the first service, and she was shaking my hand. She was a guest. She heard about this church. I don't know how. But she came, and she's white. She's from Georgia. And she looked at me. She said, thank you. Thank you. I said, for what? She said, for building like this? I'm from Georgia, and we don't have nothing like this in Georgia. I want to be with black folk. I like black people, but I can't find no place in Georgia where I can call home. Nothing like, she said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, there may be some place. She just doesn't know of one. I'm trusting that there are a lot of places like this. I just don't know many. I don't know many. Now, you go to California, different. California is different. They just different. But sometimes it's just window dressing. They ain't work through nothing. It's just just folks show up. We work through stuff. We talk about stuff. We get folk leaving after I say something on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Just get mad at me. That's all right. I'm doing what I can to preserve unity, to make sure I'm preserving unity in the bond of peace, being diligent to not put out my ethnicity before somebody else's and to make sure that we are all on the same page with our goals. We may not like the same stuff. We may not enjoy the same music, but we are on the same page with our goals of being a reconciled people that can show the world what it looks like. And it it takes a lot of work to build like this. I have to make sure that I'm not ethnocentric in my presentation, that I don't do hooping, Y'all don't, some of y'all, don't, what? What is that, Pastor? What? Hoop? Hoop? What? Who? Hula? Hula hooping? No. Google it. <laughs> that I sit down on a stool. That I communicate with Tom Brokaw English. And yet use colloquialisms every once in a while that let, let black folk know I know where you live. Trying to figure out how to navigate through all that without pausing. Seamless in my presentation, wordsmithing life to such a degree that a white person can walk in here and say, Woo, that wasn't just entertaining. I can call that man my pastor. Having a presentation of what worship looks like and everything that's on this stage that is full of diversity. Much like when Jacob wanted to figure out how in the world he could increase his flock. 
Because Laban said, you take all the speckled stuff. Take all the striped sheep. I don't want none of those. Because you can't produce any good wool that can be, that can be dyed that, that, that way. You need white wool to produce the kind of wool that can be dyed any other color. If it's gray, it doesn't work. So nobody wanted spotted and speckled sheep. Black and white sheep together, nobody wanted that. So, so Jacob told Laban, you can have all the ones I don't want. Well, Laban didn't know it, but Jacob had a plan. Jacob went out and got some ranches, marked them all up, put them at the watering hole when the sheep came to, to water. And the, the sheep began to drink, and they looked at these, these, these sticks that were all spotted and speckled and striped and, and, and marked. And th- those sheep that had white wool beget sheep that had black and white wool. So that after a period of about eight, nine years, Jacob's flock was bigger than Laban's. We intentionally present without quotas. We just use the available help that's competent, that has our heart and our vision. We intentionally present spotted and speckled reality up here to you so that when you come to the watering hole of Grace Covenant, you believe that you can relate to people that are not like you. We work hard. There's a lot of stuff. Pastors come to me and say, Pastor, I want to build what you build. Can you send me one of your white pastors? That's what a black pastor says. I want to build what you Can you send me one of your white pastors? I said, hmm. That's a long conversation, bro. <laughs> you, you have no idea what it takes to do this. I said, if you want to go this way, I'll help you, but you'll lose half your church. Because your people are used to the kind of culture you built. And some of them are not going to like not wearing robes on Sunday morning anymore in choir. They're, they're, they're not, they're not going to like having to sing Hillsong. 91.9. They're not going to go there. They have a way they want to do stuff. And I'm not mad at them for being that way. That's what they've been trained in. That's the way they know. But when you produce this kind of change, it's a 180 degree. You're going to lose half your church. Do you want to go this way? It's hard to build like this. Yet, I am happy to do so. No complaint here at all. Because it is God's best for us. That's why when I walk in, every day, I'm in awe. That... It's working here. It's a miracle. An absolute miracle. I can't produce this. Only God can. My job is to help preserve it. When you get into small groups, practically, you rub shoulders with people not like you. And all of a sudden you're challenged. How do I become an agent of reconciliation and produce something that makes the next person who walks in our building I am in awe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for your goodness and grace. Really am. You're an amazing God. I really appreciate what you've done here. And I pray you'd give us the wisdom to maintain it and grow it.